Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. This is a super treat for me. Um, my guest today is Nick McDonald's, one of the most accomplished young, young, uh, youngish, but still young people I've ever come across. Uh, I first heard of Nick when he wrote his first novel, 12, at, at 17 years old. Uh, did it come out when you were 17? You wrote it when you were it 17. It came out when I was 18. Right. Uh, slacker. And um, and he wrote a novel that I, I think only gets more um, more relevant, more resonant now, and a novel that I love, and I reached out to him to tell him this years ago, and it's, it's a book called An Expensive Education, and he wrote that at 25 uh, about his experiences uh, at Harvard and about the intelligence community, and he has a staggering new book out called The Bodies in Person that's not a novel that is um, a nonfiction account of um, of what he saw and learned uh, going around the world to forward areas in the endless conflict between the United States and uh, much of the rest of the world um, in primarily Muslim countries. And uh, it's a book that, that, that aims to... Uh, show us the cost of these conflicts by depicting the lives of the people on the ground who were killed and the people trying to uh, find or rescue or deal with them. And uh, Nick McDonald, thanks for being here. Thank you, Brian, for having me. Yeah, man, it's a total pleasure. And also, I want to say uh, Nick is one of only two people David Levine and I have ever written a script with. And <laughs> We wrote a pilot together, the three of us, which was a great experience, although uh, we never really took it out to the town yet for a variety of reasons. I think one day I'll look forward to doing that. Me too. Us okay. too. Yeah. We do as well. Um, and what a joy it was to work with you, dude, because uh, your level of professionalism and focus uh, was really in inspiring to us. And and um, it was really, really a great thing to get to collaborate with someone um, as, as focused and, and thoughtful as, as you are. Thank you. Well, let's cook up another project. Okay, let's do that after the podcast. So, um, <laughs> man, I, I've been thinking a lot about if there's a unified, sort of a unified idea or a theme you've been working on in all of these books. And I, I want to start here, and then I want to go back and, and talk bi biographically. But it, it occurs to me that, that, that you see professionalism and duty as a kind of a high calling, but also as a path... Uh, to justification uh, as a past to, to, to atrocity or the last hope against atrocity. It occurs to me that what you're really searching for, and you can tell me if I'm wrong about this or trying to understand or trying to do in your writing is to define honor, to locate it, to live up to it, to see if it can actually still grow to maturity in our world. And it seems you're also interested in his cousin dignity. And even as a young writer, the absence of these things seem to bother you in a primal way. So can you talk about your mission? I'm asking you a broad question because I know the way that you think and talk. So can you just talk a little bit about your mission, our world, and the new book through that prism a little bit? Brian, boy, if I began every morning with that kind of a speech going into my workday, I would be a much more cheerful guy. Thank you for that. That's a very generous way of thinking about really the, the work that I do. I think the first thing we should say is that a lot of what we're going to talk about today is not cheerful, it is not fun, it is just about as grim as it gets. And though I appreciate the <laughs> how professional we all were when we were working together, I don't go through my day with that kind of grimness. So the things that we're going to talk to about now, I sort of want to preface by saying that if you let them hang over your head all day long, it will be a very dark way of going through the world. Well, that, that, I, that's true, uh, but we're <clears throat> in that world. We are in that world. And, and your hope, mm. uh, as I say, this question I'm asking about honor and dignity, I think speaks to a path out, potentially. Mm. I hope so. And, and I do think about the question of honor. The way, reason I got into the kind of work that I do is because I, I wrote a novel, and I was asked by a reporter at the time, a good friend named Carl Charles Greenfeld, who's a great writer himself. He was the Hong Kong bureau chief for Time Magazine. And he read the book I wrote and he said, would you be interested in doing some journalism? And I had not thought that carefully about it, but I leapt the chance to do that. And when I came back from Hong Kong, I had a little bit of the journalism bug. And then I also went to college, turned 18, was able to vote and started thinking about what it meant to be 
an American, which is a very pretentious thing for an 18-year-old to say and a little bit less so maybe for a grown person to say, but that was what I started thinking about. And as soon as I started thinking about that, September 11th, the attack of September 11th happened, and we as a country invaded Afghanistan. And I thought, well, this is a lot of stuff that is happening in my name as an American. And something about that didn't feel quite right to me. So I wanted to go and see what actually was being done in my own name. And that's how it started. And then from, from that point on, I used that as a prism. I thought that, well, what America is doing is, in a sense, what I am doing. There's a part of me that is this. And, and that has been troubling to me ever since. Well, this question of um, what it means to be an American meant one thing for most of our lives, or at least there was a story we could tell ourselves about what it meant for most of our lives. And your books, 12 is its own thing, but it does, I believe, also deals with uh, uh, the idea of honor and dignity in a way. Um, but certainly an expensive education is talking about the idea of, uh, protecting this amorphous way of life. I think that's right. And I realize in answering this question by talking about America, I jumped laterally a bit from the question of honor and dignity. So let's think about the question of honor for a second. That's a good word that doesn't come up very often in an interview. And I have encountered it most over the last nearly 10 years of doing this sort of work around the American military. The American military takes honor extremely seriously. So do do the militaries that I have also embedded with, the Afghan military. I have been very lucky to have, have friends in the Afghan special forces. These are guys who do what the American military does, but often they do it, well, not the special forces, but the conventional soldiers do it barefoot in no, the mountains with no, no packs and all of that sort of stuff. And, and they're doing it in their own backyard. And so... The question of honor for them and what duty you live up to and 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 what honor you, you know the honor is actually in the book and so uh, this idea about that the greatest honor is to obey orders to the best of your ability but the even greater honor is to disobey when it is necessary to disobey and that there is honor in in breaking the rules as much as there is honor in executing an idea a conventional idea to the best of your abilities. Well, this is why I think your work is really crucial right now, man. Um, be because whatever side of the political spectrum one is on, there's no denying that honor as an ideal has receded in the minds of those charged with running the country. They barely even use the word. But it seems in your books, people also, um, people in power or people trying to entice other people uh, hold out the possibility of honor as a way to manipulate. Uh, and then in the new book, honoring the dead, honoring those who try to uh, despite circumstance, uh, do their duty seems very important to you. You want to talk a little mm -hmm. bit about w the new book, what it is, why you wrote it. And I would frame it, and I would ask you to, to frame it in, in terms of places that honor and dignity and duty are, are leaving and, and how, how you and, and others, and I know you don't like to put yourself in, but your book does put you in. So I think it's important to talk about those things. I'll give you a, an example. In 2016, I think it was in May of 2016, I went to what used to be Saddam Hussein's palace in Baghdad. And I went with several other members of the Baghdad Foreign Press Corps, the Washington Post, uh, the New York Times was there, I think, and Reuters and the Rottweilers, and I was there. And we were getting a, a briefing from a, a colonel, and we were talking about civilian casualties. And at this point in the war, I had, in that particular iteration of the war, I had personally documented dozens and dozens of civilian casualty incidents. I had interviewed families, I had found photographs, I had sifted through rubble, I had walked around these buildings. And 
probably 50 or so by that time, just me. And we were sitting in this briefing room talking to this guy, and we started asking about civilian casualties. And we said, well, how many civilian casualties have there been in the war so far, sir? You might say, although you might not, depending on how you feel about the role of the American media. Sure. But it can be a polite thing to say. Anyway, and he said, I don't remember it verbatim, but he said, I don't remember. And then he looked at a captain on the side of the room. He said, do you remember? And the guy said, I don't remember either. He said, I don't know, maybe 40, 30, 20? And this seemed to me something that was not honorable. It was not honorable because not only did it respect those people who had died, but it was not honorable even to the notion of a fact. And the honor of specificity and facts has been something very much on my mind. And yes. I think that you deal with that too, in the way that you, this is something that crosses the boundary between fiction and nonfiction also. And there is room for all kinds of fantabulism in fiction, whether that's a word or not is a fact that could be looked up. But I, I love the fiction which deals in facts. Uh, yes, except not in the real world. <laughs> that's the yeah. that's the thing you're trying to do. But, but uh, what what made you want to? And then we will we we will we will go backwards. But I, I guess this ties into it because one of the things you're, you're talking about also is loyalty. That is a disloyal. The thing that that officer said is on its face disloyal, right? Well. On the one hand, he could have orders from somebody immediately above him who says, you have to hold the line on this lie or on this on our knowledge of repeating disaster and ignorance. And there are a lot of ways you can parse that. But in the larger sense, I believe it is disloyal because the greatest interests of the United States are served by facts, by adherence to what is real, by what we can see. And it is more honorable to stick to that stuff, which is a little bit preachy, but is necessary to remind ourselves. And and one thing also I think that you guys do also, the hardest thing as a writer and a journalist is to say the obvious thing, to say the thing that is right in front of all of our faces. Yeah. And to make that interesting and to make it powerful. Yeah, David, I talk about that all the time. Uh, often, for a variety of reasons, often you don't want to do that because you don't want to be pandering or preaching or boring. Uh, but also facing the stuff is crucial and then revealing it, which you really do in in, in your work. But I was thinking about loyalty too, um, because in all of your work, the fiction and the nonfiction, you deal with the question of loyalty and you, and you seem not just to deal with it. And that's the thing about honor that I want to I want to keep drilling down on because it's very easy to draw certain Hemingway comparisons in the way that you open the new book, and I I'm sure that was intentional on some level because um, you're honoring this tradition in, in, in that, that you're that you're in, but you earn it I think. Oh, I'm going to do a parenthetical and walk away from the prepared question because when you said a second ago, oh that's pretentious for a 17 year old, I've I've had a few prodigies on the podcast and. Um, and I'm friends with a couple, one I've known my whole life. Are you, are you glad to be older now? Like, did the prodigy thing become tiresome to you being referred to that way, being called a young genius? Like, do you want to be four? You're 34. Do you wish you were four? Does part of you wish you could just, people like me would stop looking at you as the bright boy? I listened to a podcast last night. This is an answer to your question, I promise. And it's a wonderful podcast. I don't listen to that many, yours among them. And this one was called Everything is Alive. And Everything is Alive is interviews with inanimate objects. And last night they did one with a grain of sand. Nice. The grain of sand said that it was about 250,000 years old. I am happy to be 34 years old. You're happy to be the age um, that you're I'm at pleased to be 34 that works old. for you works for me but i guess what i'm trying to ask you though and I, is <laughs> and, and i know listen dude i mean because what did that because right some of your it's funny talking to you look you knew you were walking into i mean I, you know you had to know what you were walking into a little bit um because you know how much admiration i have for you and fondness right and warmth and uh but i think and it, and i think it's easy to um like even you saying that's a pretentious question to ask at 17. Like, I don't think that is. And I think that that's a reaction to the position you found yourself in. And I guess I'm wondering if you feel like you've synthesized all that yet for yourself. I think that synthesizing all of this stuff is the work of a lifetime. And I think that 
I was very fortunate to be in the situation I was when I was 17. And, and the work that I did was the combination. It's the stew that makes anybody do any work. And you can break down the constituent parts of that as you like. And I like to do so. This is why I like to read interviews with writers. This is why I like to talk to people about the history of their work. And I'm not sure exactly what to tell you about how how I feel about it. It's very nice to be called a prodigy. I don't think it's exactly accurate. I was not composing sonatas when I was four years old. Mozart, you know, is a prodigy. I am a 17 year old with a who with a bookworm. Right. Yes. But there is something of the you know the Glass family in uh, in your story, right? Is that fair? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're nodding along. Well, I haven't read. I mean, I, I'm familiar with what the Glass family, but I suppose, yeah, I, I don't know actually. Have you to haven't read? read the story. The, you haven't read? Um, have you never read the Salinger s- stories? The I've read Franny and Zoe. I've read. Right, that's the Glass family. Yeah. They're in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're glass. Uh, they're glasses. Uh, there is though. There's something of. I was glass listening to family. a Beastie Boys record on the way here, and they have this rhyme about. I was list- I got more Salingers than JD, <laughs> which was pretty good. <laughs> that's really good. Um, all right. So loyalty. Here's. Uh, what I pick up is that that in your work, uh, loyalty to something as big and amorphous as country or to something as brick and mortar and small as a house, a group of expats stay in when they rotate through a forward area. Those, uh, you notice that loyalty and there's something about it that seems to grab you. So, to, but, but I think it raises a question, which is to whom and what are you loyal as an artist? Like on the page, how do you deal with the competing loyalties and ties you've built to report it? But also to yourself and the reader, how do you, how do you decide as an artist to to what you're going to be uh, loyal, and then how do you explain or how have you thought about the ways in which we uh, parcel out our loyalties? I think about this a fair bit. David Halberstam, one the, the David Halberstam, the journalist, sometimes would write books about the Vietnam War, and then when he was done writing a book about the Vietnam War, would go and write a book a book about sports, about baseball, and would go back and forth, and operating in that body of work seems to me an intelligence that makes a decision about the project that you are doing. And George Orwell, whom I admire very much, said that there are four warring ideas within the writer. There is aesthetics, there is political, there is ego, there is for posterity history. And one may see how these things war with each other. And when I first started writing, I did not think much about what it was that I was doing and why I was doing it. And now every time I sit down in the morning, I think, well, what is it that I am trying to accomplish here? I, I love the romantic tradition. I like being taken by an idea. And sometimes it's important to have that within the work that you're doing. And not just as a novelist, also within the work that one might be doing, gathering information or fundraising or coaching actors or doing any of the things that are creative. And it's a wide spectrum. And... Well, but I do make a decision about what I'm doing every day now. And much of the writing that I do now has the broad brush idea of alleviating suffering and trying to make the processes of foreign policy more humane in the medium term, which is just about as far as I can click out to. Some people are good at clicking all the way out to the climate change zone. And I'm aware of that, I hope, in my own life. But the larger idea, I haven't found a way to think about that yet. But I can think about people. I can think about people I've met. I can think about what it is like for them to get blown up. And I think that there are ways that that can be mitigated or stopped. The larger question is whether or not the United States of America can remain true to its ideals, given the way that it, or can remain true to its ideals and operate in the world as it does today in a foreign policy sense. It seems to me that this is impossible. It is impossible for the United States to be loyal to the idea that all men are created equal and still behave as it does abroad, as it is right now. No one's ever going to hit the ideal. It's never going to be perfect. The question is, how do you make this process more humane? How do we allow ourselves, how do we try to get closer to the ideals that we, I hope, believe in collectively? And, and as a writer, as a journalist, as a novelist, how, do, how does that question animate you? The nice thing about that great big giant question is that it, what it comes down to for me is going and looking at people and asking them what the hell is going on here? What's going on? How is it for you? And doing that often enough leads to 
the kind of thing that I just said. And that's how it animates me. And, th and that's the great reason for a fiction writer to get out of a closed room every day, too. How do you both tap into your empathy for the people you're with when they're facing difficult circumstance and keep a cold, clear eye out for their lies and compromises? And then how do you decide? Because writers, it's not, you know, one can't really say that one just, well, I just write it as I see it, because that's not exactly so, right? We think about it and you're telling a broader narrative. So how do you parcel that, those loyalties out? I get it wrong sometimes. And then I try to learn from the mistake and I move on. And in the immediate, I work with people over long periods of time, not that long, but over the course of this book, four years. That's long. And I get to know them. I try to get to know the place they're working in. And not being a fluent speaker of many of the languages that I am working in and around, I record everything and then I run transcriptions of it. And then I translate it twice with different people. And then we cross-check the transcriptions. And then we go through everything line by line and we try to... But then there's out. a moment when you're writing and you decide what to include and what to exclude. Mm -hmm. And and this is a question of an art. I'm not, I'm not this isn't about, um, this isn't a political, I mean, it's all political in some way, but I'm asking you this as an, uh, the question you as, as, as an artist. Um, I guess and as a human, how do you figure out, how do you think about, or do you think about, is this individual ultimately on the side of good or not? And then uh, how do I shade it in the writing? I think the shading is important because I don't think that there's a good evil breakdown that way. Although I think that there are you know it when you see it, when you see those things, and they deserve the word uncomplicated. I don't know exactly how to do it. I, is is I, it a part of the job you like, though? Do you like thinking about these people and trying to... Because your books do deal with motives. They don't, they're not strictly reportorial. Mm -hmm. They deal with motive. They mm -hmm. deal with reason. They deal with fear. Yeah. I think that's what people... That's how we relate to each other. That's how we talk to each other. And so I don't, the, what the, that part of the job seems to me mostly about putting oneself, myself in the shoes of the person I'm talking to, which is an interesting thing to try to do if you're talking to a Taliban spokesman or if you're talking to right. an American Marine or if you're talking to a guy selling pomegranates on the side of the Jalalabad road or whatever it might be. And that, that's, that, I do like that about the job because that is the, somebody was talking, I was talking to this friend, friend of mine, a guy named Rasul, who was in prison in Turkey recently. And we, he was there for four months. Incidentally, the foreign journalist he was with got out after two days, but Rasul was there for four months. And we were talking about, so how he passed the time. And he said, well, actually, and he's really good at talking about it. He, you know, he's got it down. I'm sure it was harder for him than it sounds when you talk to him over a couple of beers in Erbil. But he said, you know, I got books and that was how I got through it. And I thought, well, that's cool. What'd you have? The classics? He said, yeah, the classics. I said, like, War and Peace? He said, man, War and Peace, that book's too fucking long even for prison. <laughs> the point is that what I like most about that kind of research is the getting out of, not the prison of your head, but maybe the prison of your head and, and being in the making of the books, doing the same thing that the books let people do, that they get out of these situations that they're in for a minute. You might not know what to look at me at first because I have a beard, but I do shave. Uh, because I shave the part above and below my beard, but also at times I've had a goatee, at times I've been clean shaven. And one thing is true, I always use Gillette razors and blades. Uh, I love the Gillette Fusion razor. It works perfectly. Uh, it doesn't hurt my skin. In fact, uh, it uh, does a great job and that's why I haven't changed for a long time. And here's the great news, now, you can get Gillette quality blades at the best value and convenience with Gillette On Demand. With Gillette On Demand, you can get blades delivered directly to your door. It's a simple way to subscribe and know what you're getting and be happy with what shows up at the door. Subscribe to Gillette On Demand today and get 50% off your first order with special offer code THEMOMENT50 at checkout. Enjoy free shipping and every fourth order free with subscription. Visit Gillette online at GilletteOnDemand.com. Use the moment 50 for 50% off your first order. Do it! 
do you find guilt uh, for the kind of life you've been able to to live? We, you know, as a as an American growing up with some privilege on the east side of New York and the Hamptons, uh, do you think that that's partially that that partially fuels any of any of this? When I was a lot younger, I thought about guilt, but no time for guilt. I'm much more interested in the idea that, that whatever it is that I have been able to have, there is. I do not look at the world or economics as a zero-sum game. And so what I am motivated by is not by guilt, but all the rest of it. I mean, not, not at all by guilt anymore. Did you ever, um, when, you're, when you're with some of these people, and one thing I've always been struck by in the, the time we spent together is your lucidity. And um, it's rare, and that's not, uh, I'm not giving you any kind of a, a false praise or anything. You are incredibly lucid. Uh, thinker um, when you find and and then you're lucky that you were a lucid thinker put in a world that really just valued that the your your verbal skills and all that stuff uh, do you sometimes find connection to people in these other languages where you find like someone who's also sort of was born that way but in far disparate circumstance and what does that feel like Feels great. Anytime that you run into a lucid thinker, that it's it's like a, a light goes on in whatever room you happen to be in. I was the other day driving around about three weeks ago. I was driving in Mosul, and a guy I work with there said a guy named Sangar Khalil, really remarkable Iraqi journalist who is coming to the states. I hope sometime this year if he manages to get through the insane visa process for Iraqis right now. He was looking out the window and often the the orphans of ISIS fighters are still at large in the city. And these are kids, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old kids. And he was banging on the window. And Sengar said this thing. He said, see how we just didn't give any money to that kid? Nobody, a lot of people don't give money to these kids. They just keep on driving the way you do on a street full of beggars banging on your car door. You can try, depends on the day. I said, yeah. He said, one day in the future, when somebody is begging for his life from that kid, He's going to turn away from that guy begging for his life the way that he, we are turning away from him day after day after day. And that kind of lucidity comes of being in a place combined with a care and a, a straight-up intellect and education that allows him to make those kind of thoughts. The, a wonderful thing about the book is the, the new book is these end notes you have where you're able to put things like that, like your thoughts about meeting someone like that, or like the Orwell thing where you can put this stuff in, in, in the book. Um, and you did make the choice in this book to put a lot of yourself in it, in real first person. And, and I thought one thing that was, showed tremendous loyalty to the reader was you talked about your finances. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen an author do that before. Mm -hmm. You talked about what you were paid to do it, the the amount of time you, uh, it, it's clear without saying it, you put that in relief to what uh, these people on the ground were getting paid to do what they were doing, even though you were on the ground too. Um, and you're very good about not making yourself seem heroic for being there when you're describing the other people. But it, it does seem, even though I get the guilt's not on the table and that's great, um, you know, it's the goal of all psychotherapy too, is to not make you do things out of guilt, not make one do things out of guilt. Uh, on the other hand, I, it doesn't seem to me in reading the work that you've completely gotten rid of the hair shirt either. I think that writing this book was part of figuring out my own responsibility for that. Yes. There's a part of this book where I talk about what it, I forget exactly how it goes in the book, but I think you're right. There is a moment in the book where I think about, well, why do I get to do this? Am I guilty? All of that sort of stuff. And in, in my life, I have come out on the other side of that. In the book, I think it's an important moment because I think that in some senses, we collectively are responsible for this the stuff that goes on over there that I'm reporting on. And the idea that you use, the reporter uses him or herself to make these kind of points is a valuable tool in the toolkit. And the idea about putting yourself forward, have you read 
like Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo or Random Family by Adrian Nicole LeBlanc. Random Family, yes, she's amazing. I got to spend an, uh, a night talking to her once. Oh, wow. Because uh, she's her, she's been working for 10 years on a book about comedy clubs. I can't wait to read that book. And she and I spent a night talking about that once. So, she's amazing. So what is she doing with the comedy club book? Well, we can talk about right. that off the, <laughs> the thing. But, but, um, the, but, uh, but the reason I was asking you about this stuff was that I read those books. I loved those books. Those books are about what it is like to... Be the, those books are about not the writer, right? They're recorded. They are completely away from the writer, and I thought I've seen a few books like this, and then I had seen Dispatches by Michael Hare. What would sure, it be like if you could combine these two things? I had not read a book like that, and that was the kind of book that I wanted. I wanted the person who had done the reporting, who had been there, who was totally honored the facts of the whatever the case might be, but also was willing to let the reader see what was going on and how the sausage got made and and that's what I was trying to do. Well, and and but it seems there was yes, for sure um you were trying to uh take a certain kind of um you're trying to allow the the reader to understand process, but I think there's something else at play too thematically with with putting yourself in it right because as a tool it, it much like the 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 narrator in, in our town it allows you to raise certain questions through the personal and it allows you to sort of just set out not just the disparity but the uh, there are certain words in our culture now that are um, they've almost lost their meaning because of how politicized they become. And privilege is one of those, but it's something I think about a lot. And it's something that is at the top, like really a top note in, in, in a lot of your work. And I do think talking about the way you talk about the fixers, the people who make things easy for you, I, understanding how grueling and hard it is to do what you do. But you take pains to say like, I got paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. I um, have people who do whatever they can to make this as frictionless as it can be. And I don't think that's merely a tool to, uh, 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 a process tool. I think it's something else. Just talk a little bit about that. And I know you're hesitant to like explain too much about the mm -hmm. thematics, but I do think, um, I actually think that people, it's one of the things that is incredibly rewarding in reading your work. And from a distance, your the work can seem clinical. And so I want you to talk about mm -hmm. it because it humanizes. Mm -hmm. The I you're exactly right about that. There is more to it than a tool in a toolbox. If you it 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 allows you to bring in the reader in a different way. And it says that this is me, this could be you. This could be you, any of the people I grew up with, any of the people who live in New York City who are reading this book, any, at the, I hope it's about any Americans or any English-speaking people who are reading this book. It just is a way of broadening it by, by discussing... I've lost the thread a little bit, Brian. I'm not sure how to talk about it. Catharsis. How about Catharsis. that? Well, this is the question, <clears throat> Nick, which is... It feels that you're tr you have decided with this book to uh, to take the risk of allowing yourself to have some catharsis. I, I don't think that it's catharsis, although the, I, you learn a lot when you write a book and you sort of get through the disease of the book, if that's what you want to sure. call it. But I don't think that there's a risk. If there was ever a risk, I didn't. I don't see it as a risk anymore. I just see it as sure. calling it like it is. And I write in the beginning of the book that I got paid two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars for this book, and I talk about that. And I was. I'm often curious when I read a book. Well, how do people finance this kind of stuff? How does it work? And I don't think that it's a risk to say this is what I got paid, because what I'm talking about is what I care about, which is I got paid this. This is why I can do it. This is how you get the information. You won't get the information because it costs this much, I think, to do it. And it is a fact that the people who focus on civilian casualties and foreign reporting tend to be people who have a little bit more money than usual. Yes. And why is that? Because it's expensive. So what does that do to our discourse about foreign reporting? But you also then, shortly after that, talk about that sometimes the people on the ground 
the people you're covering have to go hunting cats. <laughs> yeah. And so there is something of the confessional at play here. The confessional of being an American who has the luxury to dick around with this. That's where I bring cathar. That's where I, what I'm talking about catharsis. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. why I'm asking that question. Mm -hmm. Is if, that illegitimate? You, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a, I think you're onto it. I think, you know, it's like if you put an apple next to an orange, you will see that these two things are not the same. If you put somebody who's being paid several hundred thousand dollars next yes. to a guy who's this hunting cats. I know. This is what like I'm trying you, to ask. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm trying to get to. Uh, in, the, in the past, I think what you've tried to do is, is, is by, by these juxtapositions is, only, is really using that to reveal the other. But I think here you're as interested in revealing you, you as the American. I think that that's right. I think that that's insightful. I think that we we have to under here's what it is and why is what i want the, the the way to talk about civilian casualties to understand why that matters is to think about the thing that you love best and yes. then know that that thing is going to be taken away and to understand what it is that you love best you have to take a long good hard look in the mirror and that is part of what I am trying to do in this work. And I'm trying to do that by looking at the resources I have available, looking at the places I've lived, the people I love, the, the way I talk, the way I think. And the, that seems kind of far away from the non-combatant cutoff value, but in the end, it's not because we are talking about the flesh and blood of the people who are involved. Yeah, that's what makes the book so compelling though, man, is that you get the sense that there's a person, and that's why I think catharsis is a legit word, because it's, you're going through something. You, Nick McDonald, are going through something as you're coming into contact with all this stuff. And it's also not like you just reported this for four years. No. You've been thinking about these people, living amongst them, hanging out with them, measuring yourself against them for a long fucking time. Yeah, well, the first line of the book is, I didn't always think this way. And if you spend, as I did, nine, ten years going in and out of places where America is fighting, then it's a good thing I don't think the same way because I wouldn't have learned anything. And I, and I guess circling back to loyalty, the, the question I have is, do you find your loyalty, it's right in line with this question of uh, the first line of the book, do you find the loyalty shift? Are you tracking your loyalties? And I don't mean like, are you loyal to country or not mm -hmm. loyal to country? You obviously are, but you know, I mean the micro loyalties too. Well, I'm trying to figure out what to do. And I think that you are doing this too. I think that you are doing this in this podcast right now. I think you're doing it in, in the show. I think you're doing it all the time. I think that the, I think that there is a great f feeling and this is not a fact I don't have the facts for this, but this is a great feeling. Well, what are we going to do now? That there is a political moment that we are living in that requires a kind of action that did not exist to, it was not clear to me that it existed when I was 17, 18, 19 years old. I think it did exist. Yes, it did exist. At that point. Sure. But it was not clear to me. And this is not about a particular election. It's about the accumulated understanding of the details. So, the, so the, which brings us to the following question. What are we going to do, Brian? Well, yes, this is actually the actual next question I have, which talks about an expensive education. You know, I grew up, this is not, I grew up, I think I mentioned this to you once. I grew up uh, when I was 13, um, my father made, I've talked about this, my father made a good deal of money and we moved to a big house and the big house was next to a bigger house on a big, huge estate that was owned by William Casey, who was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've often thought about what a squandered opportunity that was for me as a 14 or 15 year old to try to influence the world somehow, you know, to, uh, or, to, you know, to sneak in there and figure out what the hell was going on. You know, he was right <laughs> next door. And that, he was a part of when the thing was changing, the professionalism in it was changing, mm -hmm. you know, and, and do you want to, did you have ideas about being an officer for the intelligence services? I did not. But uh, I no, I didn't. Um, I'm I, I, I'm too much of a wise ass man. I could never have really done any of that. I you know, and I'm not asking you the spy question either because I know you're a spy, so I don't have to ask. Um, here, here's what I wanted to talk about about what to do now because yes, I'm fucking obsessed with the question. But you know, I love your book, your novel, and expensive education. I mean, I just think it's a staggering thing, and and um, uh, and it's it, it deals with things that I've long been obsessed with. Uh, I fetishized Harvard long before my son went there. And um, 
then and and i thought it was an incredible look at, at it but because it's a look at the way the intelligence community looks at itself its take on a certain kind of it's funny this word elitism has really become loaded but it, it, that book is a take on uh, elitism like a kind of notion of professionalism and i, I wonder like you know it, even in that book the insularity of the intelligence community the way it co-opts the best of what's in people by using ideas of loyalty and professionalism and code is something the book is examining deeply. Yet the book uh, uh, does deal with the utility of the intelligence services, right? You're not slamming anybody, you're examining it. And, and, and you know, but, 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 but you do come down on the side of, boy, it's insularity is a problem and boy, the way it co-ops people is a problem. And yet the world we're in, it feels to me talking to you like uh, you'd love to go back to a place where those quaint criticisms of the of it are were the thing to be concerned about. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that I would want to go back in any direction, but I'd sure like to go forward sure, to a place yeah, where let's go so, toward that. Yeah. But I. Here's a way to put that in perspective. I had dinner a couple nights ago with a German diplomat who works on, well, he's interesting for a lot of reasons, but he was telling me that he goes to a, a conference put on by the FSB, which is the Russian intelligence services. Uh, and they do this every year and they invite delegates from other intelligence services around the world. To what? Say that again. It's to a conference that the FSB puts on to for their other intelligence services. What does services. FSB stand for? It's Russian. I can't pronounce it, but it's, but the, it's, Russian... The, it's the Russian intelligence services. Yeah, Putin was in the FSB, yes. and it's what the KGB used to be, okay. or it, it used to be the KGB. And he went a couple years ago, and he had, he's not going for the last two, but he's going again this year. And he went a few years ago, and and when he got there, he said it was interesting because he and many of the other Western spies, intelligence analysts, and so on, felt like he said whores to the politicians or had to do the building of that or were caught up in that or were civil servants or were bureaucrats, but in any case were not what it was like when you got to Russia because when they were doing their conference, they were not doing it in an office building, they were doing it in a palace. And what they were showing these guys when they got there was like, yes, we are all intelligence operatives, but we actually run the show over here. Wow, it is yeah. our show. And he said, Putin sat down and had dinner with these guys because these were his people. And so I think that whatever the problems of the American intelligence services, they are not running the candy shop. It is not their show. And that is a very important distinction. But the rhetoric out of Washington, which is what you're talking about with what are we gonna do, the rhetoric out of, the rhetoric out of Washington is we have to stop these people from running the show. These people are primarily corrupt. I'm saying the, you know, the, the rhetoric out of the White House. Mm -hmm. and, and, and having spent so much time studying these people, I mean, how does that all hit you? I, I think that the only way to deal with whatever is coming out of the White House is to fact check the the phrase in particular. It's like, and then you just go from there. To to talk about it in any other way is to feed the craziness of it. But it how do we make me. that? How do you how do you make that land with people? How do how, what do you think? Because you're a communicator, right? You're a writer. You're trying to take these complex ideas and and these situations and then uh, present them in a way that can be understood, which is why I. I even though you and I, you know, we may be, uh, which is why when people read your work, they, they need to know that it it is, it's actually for all of your intellectual acumen in the books, you you really work hard, it seems to me, to make it easy to read. I hope so. I like reading page turners. Right. I like spy, I like fantasy novels and spy thrillers and all of that stuff. That's and so the book does from, read so that way. Your, your books read like that. They're not dense and difficult to read. They require, I mean, afterwards one thinks uh, and one connects in that way. But, um, so, so, they, so what do we, so what to do, yeah. right? How do you make that land? I don't know how to make that land all the time. I try to make it land by writing a story that people want to turn the pages of. That's my first concern in a book, make, turn the pages. But to tell you the truth, I'm having a hard time figuring out how to make it land in a way that is satisfying to me. And so what I was doing recently in Mosul, for example, was taking off the journalist hat, taking off the writer hat, and figuring out how to participate in these problems in a new way. Because I can, you can be a journalist and still be doing other things. You can be a novelist and be doing other things, as you know, from what we're doing right now. So 
here's an example. I am trying to figure out how to participate in the reconstruction of Mosul. Mosul is a city that figures in the book, city of two million people. Think about 18th Street and then think about everything south of 18th Street being like rubble, being like September 11th, but on every single block from 18th Street to the bottom. That's what West Mosul looks like right now. This is because the United States Air Force trying to destroy, and the coalition, the international coalition, trying to destroy ISIS, the Islamic State, bombed that city into rubble. What are we going to do? The last time a city looked like this was Aleppo, and then you have Ramadi and Fallujah a little bit. But then before that, we're talking about Dresden and Berlin and Warsaw. And when those cities were destroyed, there were billions of dollars of capital injected. This is not happening in Mosul. And so I find it to be one, an intellectually interesting problem. This is not one in importance, but to how to rebuild a whole city. And two, like a, a pressing, there's a pressing need and there are strategic needs for why to do that. And so how do you communicate that? But well, how do you communicate? Right, because uh, the rhetoric has done a, such a good job of dehumanizing the people of Mosul, mm -hmm. has done such a good job of, in fact, dehumanizing the people of uh, that entire part of the world, that an emotional argument, which is normally the best one, feels like it, it, it's very difficult to make. But the emotional argument that might work is the one you you said that that guy said to you, which is, do you want to do you want to turn that beggar into a killer? Mm -hmm. And that is a part of the way to go forward. But I don't even think about thinking that far in the future. I think about what is the most effective way to rebuild a place right now. And it turns out that there are people who are studying this. Right? It is not. It turns out to send tents and to rebuild water mains and to pump a bunch of money into the United Nations or necessarily into the Iraqi government. The most effective and efficient way to rebuild a place or to, well, again, I, I want to stop myself. I'm excited about the idea, but you do have to focus on the studies that have been done. The most best way to do this, it seems to me right now, is to give people cash, to give people just money. And so if you look at the studies about cash assistance, you see that if you take pick your metric, say there, there was a benchmark study done in Rwanda recently in which they measured a nutrition program, I believe it was, against just cash. The traditional nutrition program, giving flour, giving whatever it was, I don't want to do injustice to that. I, I suspect it was a strong program. I know it was, in fact. And the metric might be the width of a kid's arm. You measure the bicep to stand malnutrition. When you measured the traditional program in-kind giving against cash, you had more efficiency, bigger biceps just by giving cash. And the reason is that people know what to do with cash. And this speaks to the larger problem in Iraq. For all these years, we've said, here's how to do it. We're going to bomb. We're going we're gonna to bomb part of this place to the ground, but we're going to do it with you. But we never really gave control to people at the very bottom level. I mean, people whose houses are destroyed who don't have anything. I think that if you start giving those people with rigorous selection cash transfers on the scale of two to $3,000, those people will rebuild their houses and Mosul will start coming back to life for a fraction of the cost that it will cost in the traditional way. Do you think that the American government wants Mosul to come back to life? I think that there are people within the American government who care a lot about Mosul coming back to life. And East Mosul is back to life. When, when, when you're talking to someone, you know, you mentioned before, and this is a way to get to this question of humanity, um, when you talk to a Taliban information officer, I feel I would have a very difficult time. Now, I've talked to a lot of criminals. I've talked to a lot of, I've spent a lot of time with people who've hurt people in my life, like I've professionally. And you fence with these people in a certain way. I mean, I, so, you know, I'd say I haven't, but I, I haven't been with people who are part of an, an, an institutional You know, the kind of institutional harm that the Taliban caused, the sort of, not sort of, the treatment of women that they... They're uh, responsible for the vast majority of the death and destruction in Afghanistan. And so you're talking to someone like that. How do you not give in to what must be in there, which is to sort of like scream and yell and say... Uh, shake them alert, especially if you find one who's a bright person. How do you not try to get in there and go like, but what the fuck, mm -hmm. dude? So I should, I, I try to get in there, but I try to get in there by being specific again. So I just said they're responsible for the vast destruction of, of 
death and destruction in Afghanistan. In certain years, the coalition was responsible for as many civilian casualties as the Taliban were. In recent years, most of the Taliban. That's just one measure. Yeah, but if we just talk about the Taliban streaming of women, yeah, right? You could sure. merely talk about so the So what fact. do you do? So you can't, so you, you read the person. You look at the person. It's, you know, it's like rounders. It's like poker. It's like you look at the person. You are in the room with them. You talk about the weather. Small talk will save the world. I'm not saying make small talk with the Taliban. I'm saying be willing to engage with people in the context that they live in. To what end? To mutual understanding. And, okay, what do you gain by the mutual... What do we gain by understanding what makes a Taliban, a, a bright person who's a Taliban information officer... Uh, so you're not interested in change. This is what I, I would, I know, for I am, me, I, I would want to change his mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying his because it's definitely a yeah. him in that world. I would want to change his mind. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I know I would lose. I know I couldn't. Well, maybe not. Maybe you wouldn't lose. I don't know. There are I, people who have gone. I mean, the Taliban is not monolithic. Some of the Taliban are just guys who needed 10 bucks. And that's how they join the Taliban, pick up a rifle, sure. fly out at the Americans. Yes, yeah. You can change that guy's mind. You can give him 20 bucks for one. Sure. Time. And then, yes, that makes complete sense. It, Do you engage? Do you ever try to change their minds? Can you in this role or can you not? The, I, I don't try to start with the most extreme guy like sure. i don't start with the taliban spokesman i had a, i worked with a fixer once we were driving around and he asked me I wor i've worked with fixers who had two wives for example and we talk about that i'm not and and the way that he thinks about women was something that we often talked about i talked i, I worked with a fixer once who told me that he beat up a doctor once and when i heard that i said that is you can't do that man that is it's a crime and it doesn't help your cause. He said, of course it helps. This guy, his family, they're going to come. He's going to do better next time. I said, that's not how it works. So we got into that. And you do try to change people's minds. But a Taliban spokesman is not a good place to start because that's not when you're going to win. I had a Taliban spokesman tell me once, you're two months late on this story. So he was telling me I was do how to do my job better. The other day, I was, I was at a checkpoint in Mosul last month. We were stopped by these these Shia popular mobilization units, they're kids, basically, like not much older than teenagers. And one of them spoke no English except do your job. And he kept yelling at me through the window, do your job, because he was pissed off and because we didn't have the right papers or he thought we didn't or whatever. But that's all he kept saying, do your job, do your job. That's fantastic. That's like that internet meme, you have, meme, you have one job. Yeah. Uh, yes, do, do your job is fine. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about how you do your job, actually. Uh, some more like sort of questions about you, you as an artist. Well, all right, first, what, so in the rebuilding of Mosul and in, in, in your question to me of what do we do now? This is so much fun, Brian. I got to tell you, this is so much fun to sit and talk about these ideas like this. There is not that much time in a day to sit and talk about yeah, what is behind all this stuff. It's like, what a great thing. Thanks. You well, do. you know, I, yeah, I love talking to you and I, 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 I never, um, not to turn this into a big old mutual appreciation no, society. No, but, but doing the podcast, like, I mean, I yeah. do think that actually, while may, and I'm, uh, I do only want you to talk, but I'll, I'll say this. While making our TV series, Billions, doing this, I, I constantly question how and why I continue to do this podcast because it's, um, in certain ways, the utility of it is de minimis. And, um, but the answer is, I love having these conversations and getting the opportunity to do it. And I do think that there's just not enough of, of people throwing it on the table. So have you had people in here it. who you disagree with politically? Oh, yeah. And I, I always want more of them. I keep trying to get Ben Sass on here, and I don't know how. If anyone who listens knows Ben Sass, tell him to get in here. Um, I don't think you should have any of the Taliban spokesmen in here. No, that wouldn't I work well that, for yeah. me. Um, but I want to ask some questions about, about how you do what you do. Um, can you describe uh, what the rhythm of your life has been like for the past few years? Like w how you balance all this stuff and sort of just how you decide when you need to be on the ground somewhere, when you need to write, how you write when you're in those places? It varies a lot. I go project to project. And in Iraq, I was living in a house in Baghdad for a while and I would get up in the morning and I would go and try to solve whatever the question was at that point in the research. So if the question was about a particular incident, we would try to run down the incident. And that's just as reporting, just as calling people up, knocking on doors, reading the internet, and just always writing all the time, always writing up the notes. I mean, there were, you know, I don't know how many 
tens of thousands of words of straight notebook notes and then transcripts and all that stuff. What are the techniques you use to you employ to gain trust? It's the small talk thing, clearly. Mm-hmm. And then, but how do you how do you then learn who you can trust? And ha- have those skills that you developed served you in other areas too, or do you just become like a regular person when you walk away from that environment? I think you, the the best trick about being a reporter, I think, is that you have to be as interesting to the person you're reporting on as they are to you. Awesome. More interesting. And I think the great the greatest reporters are that way. And I have a feeling that's how it works in some other, in a lot of other fields. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's actually a, a, a great thing to say. It's, it's actually a, applies across the board in a way. Um, and so that does not to say that I promise people things, but the way to be that way is to just live your own goddamn life. <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, you got to find time to have to live a life in these places. You can't show up in a place like you're on some foreign planet and try to just get straight to work all the time. You got to ride a jet ski across the Tigris River. You got to go eat mazgouf. You got to hang out. And then people want to hang out. I'm This guy's, you know, Safwan Almadini. If you're listening, Safwan know that we are talking about you and your love of Game of Thrones here on a, at the office of another show that you should be watching. And this is, Safwan is rebuilding Mosul brick by brick. You know, and we don't talk about that all the time. What we talk about is peak TV. Sometimes. Right, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Right, so you're doing that, you're engaging that. But how do you figure out who to trust? And how do you figure out who's lying to you? It's, you know, you, you just keep, it's the way you do in your regular life. But in addition to your regular life, you are trying to learn everything about that person all the time. So you are looking everything up, you're, ver- you're verifying things. So somebody tells you something, you go and try to verify it three other ways. In the case of an airstrike, you try to, if somebody says, my house got blown up by an American missile, how do you go and try to figure that out? Well, you call the Americans, the Americans don't want to talk to you. You call the neighbors, you can't get the neighbors on the phone. You call the police, the police say, why would we care about that? You go to the house, you get to the house, there's a big pile of rubble. You think this is a little bit more credible now. Then you have the beginning of the story. Yes. And then or you trust you that hear... per- and Or you get there and the house isn't blown up, then you don't trust the person anymore. And if that person told you, call my cousin too, then you're not you going to call the cousin, cousin either. You're, exactly. And this is about how you deal with security too. You get per- past, I don't remember who said this to me, but it was evocative. It's a chain of trust. I know that I can be in Tikrit with Fixer X talking to Colonel Y talking to Asset Z because I trust the person who introduced me to Fixer originally. And if I don't trust that person, I'm not going to go the rest of the chain. So you can go as far as you trust down that chain. And where it breaks, you just hope it doesn't break in a place where you're... It's like buying weed in Times Square in eighth grade. <laughs> as time, by the time I was in eighth grade, Times Square was looking in a kind of different way. But Well, when I was yeah. in eighth grade... <laughs> What did, know, did you buy? You did you know? buy weed in Times Square in eighth grade? No, but the, a guy would tell you mm-hmm. that he could, uh, like a, a guy would tell you that he could find it and he mm-hmm. would bring it back. And then you had to decide, did that guy really go to Times Square? Is that going to be oregano? Is that going to be <laughs> um, weed? Ninth grade, once I, 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 I took, uh, I smoked for like one week in ninth grade and then not again until college. I had a bad week. Mm-hmm. Um, in ninth grade and then that was it but i do remember getting sold oregano essentially from a guy who said he went to times square to get it and then i learned that lesson which is i i should go with the guy to times square right. if i wanted to figure or to it canada out. now where it's legal as of last well, week by the way it's legal here in new york city if you if you want mm. um you, you could get some um even though you're where the kush is from so i mean you're always over there where there's kush so if you want that you could find it <laughs> um Did, did your, um, when you became aware that you had certain gifts, did it immediately come with a sense of duty attached to it? A sense of like, uh, just duty to the, to, to, to the, let's say those, those gifts that, that, that you had, uh, or was there ever a time, you know, when someone learns that they're fast runner, there's a time they just run because they love to run. And then maybe they realize they can put that to use in a, a different way. I mean, it's really kind of you to say when I became aware of my gifts, I feel a little bit like LeBron trying to take my talent to Miami. I mean, I That's guess I, I do have certain gifts, but it's not, they're not like no. gifts Come on, dude, you published a, um, um, an acclaimed novel so at 17. You had we, gifts. When, when 
Yeah, that's what this book is about. It's like when you realize that you have yes. access to things, you I when I realize I had access to things, I it seems to me that there is a responsibility to do something with that. Do you have a complicated yeah. relationship with ambition? Are you comfortable being ambitious? Do you find that you were very ambitious when you were super young and do you question it now? Or have have you found a way to reclaim it? I don't have a problem with ambition. I like ambition. I like ambitious people. I like ambitious projects. Rebuilding Mosul is an ambitious project. I want to rebuild Mosul. I want to work with. So ambition, that. Uh, ambition that serves others now is more interesting to you than ambition that serves Nick McDonald. The only ambition that is interesting in the end, I believe, everyone discovers is ambition that serves others. When you look at our country now, when you when you look, you started by mentioning Orwell, and you mention Orwell in the book. Uh, you know, this book, How Fascism Works by professor at Yale, Jason Stanley, and I've been giving this question a lot of thought. And part of it has to do with language and the, the, the Orwellian way the language shifts. Um, you also talk about, do you talk about Brave New World in the book? I don't, but I love it. I know you love Brave New World. Yeah. Maybe I saw that in an interview somewhere. Um, Hoxley. But when, when we think about this, the way language is deployed and its meanings becoming, uh, well, just fucking the opposite of words being used to mean their opposites. When you have a president last night, the president said, uh, celebrated that uh, journalists getting body slammed and um, were in the shadow of the Khashoggi thing. How, how do you see all this, man? And do you think when you look at the way that language is being used by our government, how does it hit you when you look at the way language has been used in these war-torn forward areas? So the first question, how do I see all this? Sometimes I look at it and I think about geologic time. Yes. And that is a, is a comforting way of thinking. Sometimes I think about it in the more day-to-day, -day and it is a really, we're in, we're in trouble. We're in an uphill battle right now for, for the things that I care about, that you care about. But I, I don't, I, sometimes I think that history is cyclical, like even Khaldun. Sometimes I think that it's going on a straight line or a diagonal line up like Steven Pinker. There are different views of history in this way. I am not totally loyal to either one yet. I'm trying to work that out. But I don't know how valuable it is to know that we're going in a direction or not. What I know is that I see things in front of me that are not right. And I believe that by calling attention to them. Well, the direction matters only in that if you're in Tiananmen Square and you're standing in front of the tank, can you stop the tank from running you over? You know, mm -hmm. and, in, and sometimes you can, I mean, it's possible you can't. Do you think we're at the place where the tank's just running us all over for a while? Um, or do you think it's possible to stop the tank? I think it's possible to stop the tank. But I, I, you know, optimism of the, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. I don't know. That's, you know, a, really, that's a really great place. Um, fuck, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but we're going to have to end soon. But that is a great place to end. I kind of want to, when you come back. That's not me, York, by the way. That is, you know, I think that's Gramsci said that. But it's still yeah. a great line. <laughs> yeah. you, can, you can take his line and use it. Um, I don't know who Gramsci is. Who is that? He's a political theorist of the last century. From when? The middle of the 20th century. All right, I got to read some Gramsci. See, we all have lacunae. We all of us do. Um, and if you have a lacuna, because you don't know what that word means, it just means a gap. I just used an annoying, obnoxious word for gap, and I apologize <laughs> to the viewer, not to, not to the listener, not to you. There's just no reason to use that word except to show off. Um, I think I would love to have you back on here to actually just talk about being a writer, like about flow state and doing the work every day. And I think, you know, these times made me focus on sort of like your mission in a way. And um, I would love to talk again about writing process really and focus on, on, on that, your journey as an artist. But I guess to end and circle back to honor In a way, it does seem to me that this search for honor, you do find it in pockets. And I'm wondering if it leaves you. Yeah, I heard, I heard the, the quote from the guy, but I'm wondering if 
if you find it everywhere you go and 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 if it gives you if it does give you some hope or if you don't you can say it yeah i do i do see honor in just about everywhere i go moments of honor people who decide to live and commit and sacrifice i got a haircut this summer from this guy uh, in Mosul. It looks who, fucking great, by the way. Thank you. Yes. Uh, this was in June. I can still see the shape. Well, he, he's a good haircut. And I, I told the guy, this is a good haircut, man. And he was telling me he was stuck under Mosul, in, in Mosul under ISIS. And they caught him giving somebody a beard trim. Somebody wanted a goatee. And they caught him. They gave him 25 lashes. And I said, well, shoot, what did you do? He said, well, you know, I went back and I cleaned up and I healed and then I kept giving people goatees. And there are people who do these things under such circumstances. And I I find that to be a useful thing to remember. Uh, man, that's a, a really inspiring thing to remember. That's great. Nick McDonald, your uh, new book, which is called Bodies in the Bodies in Person: An Account of Civilian Casualties in American Wars is out now. Um, I really recommend that book, I, and I know that's the book we're selling. But can I just say, I really think people should read an expensive education. I think that that book talks about certain. Um, uh, it depicts certain forces at work that, although. Uh, it's just a it's a useful book because actually it's funny as I said the book is sort of a critique of a bunch of stuff but it, but it also uh, um, underpinning it are these ideals that are still worth thinking about and protecting. Thank you, Brian. Nick, Thank you. thanks, man. You can find Nick not really on. You're still not really on Twitter, right? No, I'm not on Twitter. Any social media? No. Are you on Instagram? No. You're on no social media. So fuck it. Nick's a ghost. <laughs> but yeah, I'm you easy can't, enough to, I'm you easy can't enough find to find Nick. You He's can a fucking me. ghost. Send me an email. You Is can find Nick McDonald. Are you, are you on, um, do you have a website? It's just nick.mcdonald at gmail.com. Oh, that's amazing. Mine is the moment BK at gmail.com. And I'm at, on Twitter at Brian Koppelman. Um, I know we went into the weeds a little bit here. I hope that, that you can hear, uh, the regard I have for Nick. Um, although he's certainly not a young person anymore to be in your 30s and have this sense of mission, purpose, duty, and these skills uh, as a writer really is um, amazing to me. Go check out his work and um, let me know what you think of the podcast. Spread the word about the podcast if you can, and I will see you next time. Thanks. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thank you.